The following audio is the expressed opinions of the hosts and guests and do not reflect investment advice or recommendations of any kind. All funny jokes are just jokes, so don't get it twisted. All right, we're live. Recording we is in progress. Yes, sir. Wow, we need a soundboard. That's what we really need. Honestly? Next. Yeah. Um, yep. I'll get my producer, Steven, on it. He's uh, <laughs> been chomping at the bit. Well, one of my producers. We have uh, 15 producers working on this right now. So I get to be in charge um, of the buttons, though, right? I get to push the buttons. That's no, really what you matters. Don't, you don't get to do anything. No. Okay. Yeah, good. I'm just here. I'm happy to be here. Happy to be here. No, no, I, I take that back. You do get to do something. You don't get the button pushing, but you get to make the sounds with your mouth first. And then that's like code for the producer to be like, ah, yeah. remove that, add that sound. Oh, that's good. I like it. Yeah. yeah. Nice. Yeah. There nice. you go. Just a waste of their time. Because yeah. I could just give you the button, but that's not fun. Yeah. So. Yeah, we can work test on their that. editing skills. Cool. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. All right, so we are past the largest commercial day in U.S. American history, uh, Black Friday. So in between Thanksgiving and Christmas, good old Black Friday drove up a ton of sales. There was a lot that I saw. Twitter, e-com, um, lots of different businesses trying new marketing tactics. I have some thoughts on that. We can go through that. Um, I do have some high level pictures that I want to go over, like what I think is the smartest business, uh, but maybe won't last as long. Um, like smartest so business is, of all time? Like get rich quick, but oh, your nice. business won't last more than a handful of years. And then uh, there's, bright, a few, uh-huh, uh-huh. there's a few regular uh, ideas that I want to spin past you, but where do you want to start first? I'm going to have you pick the menu. Oh, let's see. Um, so let's start with burn, burn fast, burn bright. What is this? About? Okay. What is the best okay. business ever? Okay. I'm glad that uh, that hooked you. I got something oh, yeah. really, really intelligent to share with you. So cool. Um, how familiar <clears throat> are you with 1990s television? Like TV shows? Yeah. I, I'm going to say not familiar so that when you test me and I don't know, I don't look like an idiot. Okay. Uh, I've got Fresh one, Prince, man. Yeah, Fresh Prince is one. I've got one you've probably heard of, Seinfeld. Hmm. Okay. Oh, yeah. There is an episode in 1991 of Seinfeld where George Costanza is trying to get Elaine a gift, and he ends up buying this cashmere sweater. Okay. So cashmere sure. sweaters were, you know, a known thing, a popular thing at that time. Um, and still I don't know known. if there's, Oh, absolutely. They're still popular. They're still known, but yeah. back in the day, that sweater. So here's some good questioning for you. It's 1991. It's an expensive sweater. Tell me how much you think it costs in the show in that episode, like what it was supposed to cost brand new one. Oh God, man. My ignorance of retail is bad here. Yeah, throw a number uh, out though. It's less than a million. Shoot. No, it's got to be like, oh, what do you spend on like, like a really nice cashmere sweater? I feel like people spend like five yeah. grand on cashmere sweaters, but I don't really know. Like, is that it? Is that ding ding no. ding? 
No, so there, there's like a there's a level right now or a range. I would say that it can't get up to five thousand today. But in the show, it was a super expensive cashmere sweater uh, or a very nice one, same thing. But six hundred dollars. Okay. Okay. And he looks at the sweater. He's like, "Oh, this is great." And then the whole joke of the show is um, there's a little red dot on the sweater, and so it's like ruined. And so he gets to take it and show that there's a you know deficiency with the sweater. It gets it super discounted to like $85, right? And gives it to Elaine and she finds out that he just bought it at a super discount price. And that's the whole show and it's hilarious. But you take that and you fast forward to today. The entire cashmere industry has exploded since 1991. Uh, looking at stats, this is something I came across Twitter. Um, there was this ability in 1991, they make cashmere out of goats, mostly in Mongolia. And in 1991, there were 5.2 million goats in Mongolia. In 2004, it quintupled to 25.8. And here in 2022, it's estimated that there's at least 50 million goats in Mongolia, bred specifically just to make cashmere sweaters. All right, so I wonder what the what the criteria is for a goat to be like that. I want to pause you right there because this is really interesting. Um, yeah. So I obviously do all kinds of different in, investment-related activities. Um, right. I've looked into livestock um, and, and different <laughs> ranch, different ranch investments, right? And what's sure. very interesting here is that uh, this has been a sustaining trend. Goats are like the best investments for a ranch. Um, I have no idea why. Raising them, breeding them, like goats are. They the are. The goat. I wonder if that has anything to do with, with cashmere and, and how it's made. I, I don't know what, what A to B process is like, but that's interesting. It's also yeah. kind of a broken market that we've discovered, if that's the case, where, where supply continues to increase, but price so, increases with it. That's, that's funny. So here's the thing. Like all <laughs> items of luxury, once they gain popularity, so this brings it back to Seinfeld, the general public, let's call it in America, understanding what a cashmere sweater is and kind of wanting one because they see the best marketing campaign in 1991, which is it's shown on Seinfeld. The long game. Everybody the wants long one. game. So yeah, you get a spike in demand. Okay. Sure. So you have to raise up that supply. But at the same time, if there's such a growing, vibrant business and you're increasing the goat population, then you can drive the cost of what that sweater or cashmere sweater ends up being or costing. Um, so a retail buyer here in the US. So there's a the reason I'm getting into this, there's this company. Uh, they're called Nadam. Nadam, I think. Yeah, let me. Yes, that's their name. And they made a terrific marketing video about just traveling. Two guys quit their investment banking jobs, go to Mongolia on a trip, realize there's lots of goats, realize that tons of these farms just exist for making goats and producing the correct materials for cashmere sweaters but there's a million different steps in the middle of the way from going from this goat farmer to your dresser at home. 
And they're like, we'll solve it. We'll cut out the middleman. And then we'll be the middleman. Like the 17 steps in between. So it gives the goat farmer more money and it gives the sweaters to you for a lower cost. And I was like, okay, this is econ 101, but you're, you're doing it right. And they have generated such a following and tons of different, you know, farms, marketing connections, everything else. They are giving or not giving, but selling these sweaters, these really nice cashmere sweaters for like 75 bucks online. And you can order it, ships to you. Yeah. So they took the extreme e-com route on how do I make this at scale and crush it so I can, yes, take out the steps in between, but you know, I make it look like that's the problem. There's so many complicated steps and then you just make it one company in the middle and it's easier when in reality, it's the still <laughs> it's the same number of steps and everything else or, you know, different equation or uh, parts of the equation, but they're just benefiting. They're profiting on each level of the step and then controlling it, making it more faster and efficient. Um, but I like that you said earlier, so I want to go back to that of goats are really good animals or livestock to have that is correct unless you have 50 million of them (laughs) and then there's things called overgrazing and that's all that's everywhere environmental yeah um and of course there's like lots of you know dust desert whatever storms in mongolia and they're trying to trace it back to the high increase in goats and so like any great thing you can always point to oh it causes always negative Yeah, or it causes negative consequence. Like, oh man, Apple's such a great company, but it did X, Y, Z to the environment. Yeah, right. Or sure. Oh man, blockchain's such a good idea, but <laughs> like, yes. yeah, too much, too much of a good idea is bad. Always, that is the rule. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So that's that's kind of where this sits. Um, but I thought that was very interesting because there's a lot of data that started pulling it. Uh, and you could trace it back to 1991, which, funny enough, that's that sweater. And then you could see the spikes in demand and then purchases in the U.S. And hmm. funny how, you know, marketing is a real thing. It is the best way to sell something is if you can market it well. Um, so that's marketing a it well is kind of a itself. It's almost, I, I don't know how far Seinfeld was in, in 1991. They, that show started in like 1988 or 1989. So there are probably only a few sure. seasons in, I think. Yeah. Um, that's funny because I think I, we just kind of started watching that a little bit the first episodes. I have that off the top of my head. Um, without, <laughs> without prep, I kind of know when Seinfeld started. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, you're two years in as a marketer, you put that in there, but you don't know that that's going to be a show that's around for a long time and that people are going to love it forever, you know, like, so marketing is risky, but yeah, you're right. If it (laughs) hits, if it hits, you you can see some power out of it. Then you're Um, sold. That's exactly it. Just as easily, easily could have been some show that canceled a year later and nobody ever sees it anymore. And it's, it's dead gone. So right. Very interesting. Very interesting goats. Um, The overgrazing problem is interesting too. I talked with a guy, literally yesterday who knows somebody that runs a livestock farm or livestock fund for cows. Um, And he was talking about how they solved this problem of overgrazing and needing a bunch of land for a bunch of cows. And um, our PETA folks, this is not me. So don't hate me. I'm not going to give you any names. Um, But what they've done is they, they have a cow farm now. Um, I think he said it's in Kentucky and they're working with all of the distilleries, whiskey distilleries and stuff 
and taking all of the residue from the distilling process, all the old corn and maize and whatever else is in there. And that's what sure. they're feeding the cows instead of letting them graze. And so they're accelerating the amount of cows they can support and minimizing the amount of land. And they're, they're still getting great produce and, and still able to produce beef and stuff. It's a very interesting idea. I was like, oh man, we have a bunch of brewers in, in Austin. Why don't we just collect all of their scraps after brewing, yeah, you know, they have all that nasty crap and then go mm-hmm. yeah, feed ranchers, you know, feed cattle and stuff with it. But um, it's not bad. Yeah. You just got to play middleman. Right. And if you want to play middleman, it's great, but see quote unquote wholesaling. So you get it at something, sell it at something, but you have to deal with X, Y, Z operations in between. All you so, got to do, all you got to do, right. They have, they pay somebody to this, to dispose of that garbage. Yeah, so yeah. you just got to beat that person's price be cheaper than that person. And then, you know, the ranchers are paying some money to feed their cattle or paying for corn mill or whatever. So then you got to beat that price on their end. And if there's a spread and hey. you can put, be profitable trucking and shipping and whatever. Sure. There's a business. There's the first one for all our listeners. There you go. <laughs> I love it. There's so many like, so. are you hungry? Do you want to work hard and make a lot of money? Well, find the spread. <laughs> <laughs> find the spread. Stick yourself in there. Get the margin. That's um, good. That's cool. our first T-shirt. Find the spread. Find like the it. spread. Yeah. Hey, What's next? Hey, what, what was you're the next uh, you're walk, rocking these Jeffrey Dahmer glasses. Are those new? Ah uh, man, uh, they are relatively new. Uh, there's okay. Yeah, I, I everybody's calling me Jeffrey Dahmer. Dahmer. I can't decide if it's because the show just came on, and so everybody the show. Like, it's everybody like top of mind. It's that or everybody's weird and they just like have Jeffrey Dahmer on the tip of their tongue when they see me. I'm like, I don't know. You shouldn't be thinking <laughs> about that he, guy. He's kind of long gone. Um, well, you should stop killing people. Like that's another reason it comes up. Well, yeah. Sure, the whole sure, murdering thing thinks should about stop. It, you know? oh, okay, cool. Um, but what's, so, what's super funny about that is, yeah, so I got these glasses and we went um, to Minnesota for some family trip. It was the first time meeting my wife's family. And I was wearing these glasses and all of them started calling me Dahmer. And that was like the first <laughs> time this Dahmer thing came up. Okay. So fast forward a month, maybe. And her cousin, we get a package from her cousin and we're like, what is this? And he sent me, hold on, let me get this here. He sent me this little, uh, they know that I cook. I, I like cooking. Like that's one of the things I like to do. So they sent me this little thing, this little kitchen thing. And it says this on here. <laughs> if you can't beat them, eat them. <laughs> and it's got Dahmer's face That's on it. Awful, man. So I, I took a picture with my glasses, with that, with that on, with like a knife in my hand. It was, it's classic, classic picture. Need to make it the Twitter profile picture, but then nobody will ever talk to me. Um, no, so, um, you're already on the FBI's most wanted list. So certainly, I'm not sure why, but you got to be on there for something. Uh, doing oh, all the gosh. all the random contacts I do. Um, so yeah, man, that's, uh, that's, uh, that's, that's my, I guess, I don't want to call it my nickname. I don't want to call it my, uh, um, uh, what's the word my, uh, celebrity lookalike, I guess would be my yeah. doppelganger. I don't want to call it my doppelganger, uh, but <laughs> it's what I get most. So, well, it's that. the glasses. You take the glasses off, you're fine. Um, yeah. I just feel like that's, you know, somewhat style in, um, Anyway, get get rid of those, and you can be good. Um, <laughs> Fashion did, advice did you, from Connor. <laughs> yeah, buddy. Did you see this uh, this uh, Forbes thirty under thirty list that came out? And that no, they included, don't people pay to be on that? Would they include SPF? Probably. 
I, I, I'm actually, I think they do pay. I don't know the certain details or everything around that. I, I don't know why I haven't been called or you haven't been called yet, but um, there's this uh, part of the article is Alameda Research <laughs> made the Forbes 30 under 30 list. And then someone went back and they just found, you know, Elizabeth Holmes and SPF and all the other people that have made it in previous years of like, oh, look, look at all these successful entrepreneurs that are going to make the world such a better place. And I thought awards mean nothing. Like they really (laughs) are so empty. And honestly, these people just turn around and sell their soul or whatever to. They do. The court, of public, the court of public opinion can really make or break you, right? And, and yeah, if you get into these recognition and awards, it's really nice, but it's a very finicky thing, dude. It's like, yeah, you, everybody's for you, and then the next thing you know, everybody's against you, and that's just how it goes. So uh, sure. not being yeah. in the spotlight would be ideal, but people yeah. with podcasts, you know, uh, they're obviously not trying to stay hidden. So yeah. But one day we'll be thing, there, maybe. Yeah, I mean, you can either just, you know, die a hero or live long enough to see yourself become the villain. There you go. Which is great. Speaking yeah. of SBF, did you see his little interview I that did. he gave? I really? Did. Okay. Yeah. Let's talk about that because I got snippets and I was going to do more inf- uh, research into it. What did you see in here? Uh, he's a shaky dude. Um, I watched verbal, I watched verbal body language more than anything else. Here's, I don't know, man. It's a, it's an interesting thing to, to consider what it's like to be him. Right. So, so I saw on Twitter too, that you mean a uh, charlatan? No, hold on a second. Hold on a second. I saw on Twitter, like Bill Ackman and he backed him shark tank guy backed him. Right. Um, and people were pissed off about that. What's his face? Yeah. Rightfully so, right? Rightfully so. I, I, I think from their perspective. Um, so, yes, he was finicky. Yes, he's definitely in trouble. Yes, he did a lot of sketchy stuff. The thing about all the interviews was he kept saying, I didn't know about that. I didn't know about that. I didn't know about that. And I think that it's interesting that these big finance guys come back and say, I believe him there. Because internally, I kind of believe him there. In that it's not, we all have this, everybody has this concept of like, if you run a big bank, you know everything that everybody in the bank is doing at all times and you know what's going on, but it's not the case. And this happened at, uh, uh, was it Bear Stearns? Who was it that uh, Warren Buffett invested in? Uh, Solomon Brothers. Solomon Brothers. Solomon Brothers. Yeah. At Solomon Brothers, Brothers, they got a lot in a lot of trouble because there was a bond trade desk guy who was defrauding the government, literally defrauding the government on treasuries trading. And it happened, and the CEO didn't know about it. Now, somebody did eventually bring it to his attention. And when they brought it to his attention, he could have fired the guy. The guy said, oh, no, I'm sorry. I'll never do it again. I've never done it before, yada, yada, yada. Let it go on again. But then it happened a second time. But, but that story aside, it's not like he was watching the bond trading department at all times and knew what was going on, right? So right. in this SPF interview, there's all kinds of stuff of like, oh, there was this big transaction here. How did you not know that happened? It's like he 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 was meeting with regulators all the time, talking with investors all the time. He his time was definitely spent in a lot of different areas. You got to have right. a team and trust that they're going to do the right thing. 
it's definitely his responsibility. He's not absolved from responsibility, but I do kind of believe him when he says, I didn't know about this. Happening, or I didn't know what was going on here. Yeah. Um, I, I can get that. I can believe and him. I think, I believe that. but I think he's playing it as a catch all card. Well, this he's other like, guy, Oh, these really big things. I didn't know about that. Like, I well, didn't know are, that it, we were giving this much money to Alameda or that when Luna crashed, we didn't realize the rug was pulled out and were extremely leveraged. Dude knew. He knew those things. He knew that they were on the tipping point and there were some huge mistakes that he pulled. And what he started to do was extremely okay and legal, but sketchy. And sketchy suddenly turned into illegal. Because then he had to cover up customer deposits missing and some other huge red flags. And he was going to cover it up and fix it. And then everybody would be right as rain. And there was going to be nothing to be seen that would be wrong. But Binance called him out. Homeboy. That I just, it was such a freaking war um, that I think the timing was extremely unfortunate for ftx like it was the worst timing to have it pulled up or maybe i'm wrong and it like they'd be doing it for years but the way that sbf kind of puts it is he thought that he could get away with it of just like yeah i I did you know these mistakes and as a company we did this but we're on the path to correcting it and things just hit the fan at the wrong time which honestly that could be true but like that means he's still made the mistakes in the first place. And then finance well, so, was like, here we go. I, I still don't, I still don't blame him for making the mistakes. Here's, it goes right back. You said the exact same thing that I'm saying. We just don't know that we're saying the same thing yet. At Solomon, the leader found out that sketchy stuff was going on below him. The sketchy stuff had already happened. There was no getting out of it. It had happened. The government was going to be pissed. So he did what sure. any person would do. So, so this is so. Let's relate this to SBF. SBF did not make decisions to get themselves into a place where they got. His team probably made these decisions and got their investments and and tangled them up in all of these different contracts and derivatives and and over leveraging. Um, mm-hmm. Whenever he was told about it, you're right. He he knew about all this stuff going bad, but it was too late to undo it. Right. It, right. It, the bad things had been done. Everything had been put in place. So just like the Solomon executive. <laughs> he just tried to cover it up because it's like, it's done. You can't undo it. You're not going to yeah. go tell on yourself. It's very hard to be like, I'm going to go tell on myself. And the results are going to be the same. The Solomon executive got in a ton of trouble. He got fired. He lost all of his money. His net worth was but, gone. His reputation was gone. But, he was barred but, from the but. industry. You're using that example, <clears throat> assuming SBF didn't make those choices, decisions, or actions. And it was someone that was a subordinate to him. Believing that he didn't. Because that's his whole thing in a lot of the interviews. Like, I didn't know that happened. I wasn't aware of that happening. I didn't know that that was going on. Blah, 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 blah. I believe that. I believe that he didn't know about it until they came to him and they said, hey, we leveraged customer accounts here and now it's a disaster. We got to fix it. And he was just like, oh, crap. Okay, let's hide it for now. Let's figure out what to do. See, and- I disagree with you there. I think he had to make the choice. Like, mm- it just is shocking to me that someone without full executive power and authority says like, Hey, this illegal thing, I'm just going to do it to save the company. Somebody in that instance would be like, I know I need to do something, but 
in my mind, I just, there's so many, there's so many instances. It's not one action did all of this. So it's just shocking that there's just, I don't believe it, that there's not one or a few things that SPF had to be like, yeah, okay, let's do that. And let's see if we can get away with it. Where I sit is he absolutely is, needs to be held accountable. It absolutely was, was his team, his decisions to make that team and, and give that team the authority he gave them, his inability to control risk management. But at the end of the day, right, there was, there was people underneath him making decisions and things that he had delegated out. And like any business owner, right, it's not, it's not uncommon for a small business owner to delegate a task to drive trucks to somebody for a trucking company. That truck driver unbeknownst to the owner, be a complete drug addict, alcoholic, and crash the truck and kill a bunch of people. Company owner's responsible. Company's responsible. They're in trouble. Mm-hmm. But, yeah. you know, it's just like, that's business, man. Um, and, and yeah, he does need to be held responsible. And uh, jail time probably still needs to happen for him. And, and it will, I'm sure. But I do believe him, in some instances at least, that it's possible that he didn't know a lot. Um, and that no, I, and I, him. that's what I agree with you on. Um, I disagree yeah. that he can sit there and be like, I was just, you know, plausible deniability on everything. Everybody in the company just hid stuff from me because I'm perfect. And that's yeah. where I'm like, nah, there's, that's a lie. The sums yeah. up. And some of so, that could be lawyering, right? Some of that could just be lawyering. His lawyers had to have prepped him on some of this and been like yeah. ignorance at all times. Um, so there's a balance there, but everybody ripping into Shark Tank and, and Bill Ackman, um, you know, I, I see where they're coming from too, which is like none of those people that are ripping into them have run a financial company or, or a big entity like that. And so they don't know that yeah. Bill Ackman has people doing stuff that he doesn't know anything about. Um, and he's got to trust those people not to put the firm in hot water. Sure. Um, yeah. But and also- you got to do the right thing whenever you find out the firm is in hot water, right? S- but what, where SBF went wrong was if it's the case that he didn't know about anything and Alameda was using customer deposits and he didn't know about it. As soon as that light was shined and, and he saw it, he should have gone to authorities and said, hey, this happened. Yep. We're going to try and make up for it. This person is, is kind of the one responsible and, and just been, you know, made note to me. That's like, that's the difference there. And you got to eat you got to eat whatever sanctions or whatever come to you when that happens, but he hit it for sure. And he definitely tried to get out of it. Yeah. For sure. Cause there's, and there's a way him. out of it. There is, it's very hard to do, but in his mind, he's like, I'd rather do this. The, un, you know, correct right way and save myself, which honestly, yeah. So many people would, if I was in yep. this situation, I would think that I do the integrity thing, but it's hard. It's, I don't it's know, so the hard. Company you, oh my gosh. But if he made that choice too. So that's the choice that he also made. And I don't know. That's the choice that he's in trouble for that choice. And that's so one last time going back to Solomon, that's exactly what the executive did. The executive had a chance to report to the federal reserve that his bond trader had been, had been doing sketchy things on bid auctions on bond auctions. And had he done that, Solomon would have gotten in trouble. They probably would have been removed from the preferred bond trader or whatever. Um, and, yeah. and the bank would have suffered, but he chose not to. And later on it got uncovered and he, he was in trouble for it. So that's the way it goes, man. It, you, you know, you never know what you're going to act like whenever that situation comes up. Um, and SPF did wrong. 
definitely did wrong. Yeah. So it's um, usually a hard thing when you're like, should I choose money or uncomfortability? And like, what's exactly the bigger right. sacrifice? Like I can't see into the future to see what consequence ends up being the worst. Or even if you're an altruist or a really good person, it's like, should I, should I, is this going to happen again or get uncovered or should I hide it? Because there's so many people working for me. This wasn't true in SBF's case, but in Solomon, there was tens of thousands of bankers working for Solomon, right? I mean, it was a, it was a big company and it's like, okay, these people are going to lose jobs and, and incomes. Yep. Yep. You know? So even if you're a good person, you can no, make the wrong decision. Yeah, you're thinking like, oh, do I sacrifice one for the many or whatever? Yeah, exactly. And when it comes down to it, as just sucky as it is, sometimes you just have to do the thing that, you know, hurts, which is yeah. like, okay, thanks for doing this, man. Uh, you're probably going to go to jail. You're fired. And you're one of our best traders, but you're, you know, uh, con artist. And then Got to go meet with regulators, change my whole day. We're going to lose a ton of income. I'll probably be ousted as CEO for losing income, blah, blah, blah. Yep. And you think about all that and then you're like, or we could just hide it and it might be okay. And yep. that's just, that's just wrong, man. Cause things come to light and you're just, you're a little, you know, thrown under the bus. So, so all of this comes from, uh, I'll end with this. All of this comes from Charlie Munger. Charlie Munger has a whole thing on this, man. Because he was what all about say? the Solomon thing. Um, it's, it's a lot like if you have an employee who cheats you, somebody that cheats you and steals from your register or something and takes away from your pocket, you mm-hmm. don't necessarily have to fire them. Um, it was a bad thing, right? Every employee is going to come to you and say, sorry, I've never done this before. I'm never going to do it again. I didn't mean to do it, yada, yada. If they do something bad, that's what they're going to say. If they did it right. to you, you can choose to fire them. You can choose to get back at them, whatever. It's not a big deal. But if they do it to a customer, you're putting the business reputation on the line. And it is always, always, always the right decision to get rid of them, no matter what their yeah. circumstances are. So yeah, that's how it is, man. That's how it is. Hard to do, man. Yeah. All right. I feel like this is, uh, this is good, man. I'm glad to talk to you again. And we'll talk soon. Are we wrapping it up? Yeah. Okay. Cool, man. All right. We'll chat later then.